we're going to get started here. It's a couple minutes after seven. So again, want to thank you all for being here. Uh, looking forward to our time together tonight. And as always, want to open us up with a word of prayer, inviting the Lord to be present and inviting the Lord to speak to us. And as always, make his word clear to us, which he loves to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you uh, just for this new day that you have given to us. Grateful for your presence with us. Grateful for your faithfulness to us. Thank you so much, Lord, for another opportunity to be together as your people. Uh, Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us. And thank you for uh, calling us by name and allowing us to hear your voice calling to us. And you are the good shepherd and we are the sheep. And thank you that you allowed us to recognize your voice, to hear your voice. And we do pray now, Lord, that we would follow you, that we would be obedient sheep. And wherever you lead, wherever you take us, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would find us following you in obedience and with joy and zeal as well. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much for the incredible things that you have preserved for us in your word. And thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word, to study your word, to talk about it together. And we are just so grateful to you for the things that you show us in your word. Particularly, Father God, in this series on Wednesday nights, as we have endeavored to try to understand what you have to say about the last things, we just ask, Lord God, for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that nothing is hidden from you, that everything is perfectly clear to you. And we just pray, Lord, that the things that you want us to know, the things that you want us to understand, that you would help us to uh, rightly uh, interpret the scriptures. Father, in everything that we will talk about tonight, um, we simply invite you to speak to us. We invite you, Lord God, to make things clear to us. And then, of course, Lord, we ask you to help us to apply to our lives the things that you show us. As we've prayed before, Lord, we don't want to just gain intellectual knowledge or theological uh, understanding, but we want that to lead to a different way of living, a different way of responding. And so help us with that right now. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. As separation, to think of death as separation. So when we think of physical death, physical death is the separation of your spirit or your soul from your physical body. When you die physically, remember we read in Genesis, your body returns to the ground from the elements uh, from which the Lord made us, but your spirit or your soul continues. Your spirit or soul is not destroyed. Your spirit or soul does not cease to exist. It's separated. So there is a separation of your immaterial self from your physical body when you die physically. And that is the first type of death that we talked about. Second type of death that we looked at is what we called spiritual death. And this is the idea that you are separated from God. We looked at a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus talked about the necessity of being born again. And this sort of implies the idea that you need to be born again because even if you're biologically alive, even if you're physically alive, you are spiritually dead. You have to experience a new birth 
or a second birth or a birth from above, a birth of the spirit. Then we also read the opening verse of Ephesians chapter two, which said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So obviously we had been physically born, we had been living our physical biological life, but the scriptures clearly taught that until we were born again, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so remember the warning that God gave to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But remember, they ate from it and they did not die physically. But what they experienced immediately was the spiritual death, the separation of connection with the Lord, of fellowship and relationship with the Lord that they had enjoyed previously. Yeah, Elliot, a comment or a question? Just remember to turn on the mic so folks on Zoom can hear you. Uh, in spiritual death, does that also go along with being born dead? That, that phrase, being born dead? Yeah, in Ephesians 2. Yeah, I would say that that's this, the, the, the very idea that we're talking about. Absolutely. That disconnect from the Lord that came as a result of sin, that can only be restored by being born again. Yeah, absolutely. Again, just, and maybe it's worth reading it again, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins. So Paul was talking about how we were living before we were saved by Christ, before the Holy Spirit regenerated us, before we were born again. We were living dead. Now, I realize today that's like zombie apocalypse kind of language, but from a biblical standpoint, we were living dead, okay? So that was the second death that we talked about. Then the third death that we talked about is something that the book of Revelation refers to as the second death. Um, we refer to it as eternal death. And this is then eternal separation from the Lord. And this is ultimately what happens to uh, the unbeliever. The unbeliever will experience eternal death or will experience the second death, which is eternal separation from the Lord. So we spent a lot of time last time talking about death. And as I said, it's helpful for me to remember thinking in terms of death as a separation. Physical death, your immaterial being is separated from your physical body. Spiritual death, you are separated from the Lord, disconnected in your relationship with the Lord. And eternal death or the second death, you are eternally separated from the Lord. Then the last two passages that we looked at are here about uh, three quarters of down the sheet, Christ's victory over death. And of course, that is one of the great, great news of the New Testament. One of the great messages of hope is that Christ is victorious over death. So Romans 6, 9, it says that he died once for all and rose from the dead, never to die again. 
and death does not rule or lord over him. Death has no power over him. And then the second Timothy passage, uh, chapter one, verse 10, it says that Christ rendered death ineffective. So the power of death with the resurrection of Christ has been rendered ineffective or abolished or nullified, depending on your translation. So even though death is still a reality, if we do not live to see the Lord come again, physical death is something that we will all have to face. Before we met Christ, spiritual death was something that we were all walking in. The great news in regard to death of the New Testament is that because Jesus Christ himself died and because he rose from the dead, he has defeated death. He is victorious over death. So that was basically what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Any other thoughts or comments or questions about that before we begin looking at some new material tonight? Everything is clear? Excellent. So again, looking at the sheet that you have in front of you, or hopefully the sheet that Carl is sharing with you are on Zoom, at the bottom of the sheet that at the top says the intermediate state, it says the Old Testament background, Sheol. So we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about this concept that is referred to as Sheol. Now, Sheol is actually a Hebrew word. And as you can see, it occurs about 65 or 66 times in the Old Testament. So it's not a rare word. And we, of course, will not even begin to look at all of the different times and places that the word Sheol is used. But it's important for us to lay here sort of the Old Testament foundation for the New Testament understanding of the intermediate state. Remember, that's the main theme that we're talking about here. So Sheol is translated different ways in different English translations. So the NIV usually translates Sheol using the English word grave. That is the most common way that NIV translates Sheol. Um, I think some of the newer NIV versions occasionally use the phrase, the realm of the dead. Okay, so this is NIV. Another English translation that is used in the KJV, an older English translation, they translated Sheol as hell. So if you're reading the King James Bible, you will come across um, the translation hell in the Old Testament when the word Sheol stands behind it. Uh, NASB and ESV, they kind of punted on this and they left it untranslated. So an NASB or ESV, they simply leave it as Sheol. Now, of course, what we see here is there's kind of a range of translation here. And of course, the real question is, well, why would NASB and ESV choose not to translate it? Well, what that is telling us is there is not a great single 
English word that translates the concept of Sheol. It's not really something that we have an English word for. Probably the closest of these three English translations is the realm of the dead. But even that sounds like a little bit kind of like Halloween or a little bit spookier. We were talking a second ago about the living dead as in zombies. And, and that's why even that's a little bit sort of a strange concept. And, and if you look at all the different places in the Old Testament that Sheol is used, it certainly is not you know, a cheery idea or a happy idea, but the realm of the dead is probably the closest of, of the English translations that we have up on the board. But basically speaking, the concept of Sheol in the Old Testament is simply the absolute belief that when a person died physically, that they did not cease to exist. So the main idea behind the word Sheol is simply that when a person died physically, they did not cease to exist. Yeah, question? Is that where the concept of purgatory comes from? Uh, not exactly. But remind me when we start to get into some New Testament passages in a couple minutes to talk more about that, because the concept of purgatory is something that actually developed from the books of the Catholic Bible, and it started to develop later than what we're looking at right now. So if I forget, Elliot, remind me when we start to look at some of the New Testament passages on the second sheet. So let's look at a couple of different examples of when the Old Testament uses the word Sheol. So I've listed for us actually five verses here at the bottom. If we could have some volunteers to turn to those and read those. So the first one that we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 37 and verse 35. Do we have someone, a volunteer, to turn to that and read it in a second? Genesis 37, 35. I'm going to call all these out and then we'll, we'll read them. But Ted, will you read Genesis 37, 35 in a moment? Then can we have someone volunteer to read Numbers chapter 16, verse 30? Okay, Dan, thank you. Then we're going to get a couple in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 6 and 9. They're close to each other. Would someone be willing to read those for us? Yeah, yeah. 1 Kings 6, 2 to 9. I will, Flora. Thank you, Flora. And then the last one that we're going to look at is Psalm 89, verse 48. 89, verse 48. Okay. So the first one we're going to look at, Ted Lewis is going to read that for us. Genesis 37, verse 35. Genesis 37, verse 35. Would you read that for us, please, Ted? It says, then all his sons and his theirs, referring to Jacob, all his sons and, and, his, and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Okay, so obviously we're just reading a single verse here. What is going on in Genesis is... Jacob's brothers, yeah, no, no, excuse me, Joseph's brothers, 
have uh, sold him into slavery. I will go down to Sheol mourning to my son. So what is he saying? He is saying that he believes, wrongly so, that his son is physically dead. But if he had been physically dead, he believes that he is existing now in the realm of Sheol. That Joseph had not ceased to exist, but he was continuing to exist in the realm of Sheol. And that one day he, Jacob, would also die. And when he died, he also would continue to exist in the realm of Sheol. And that's when he would be reunited or rejoined with his son, Joseph. Okay, does that make sense? So basically, all Jacob is saying is, believing that his son has died, he says, my son has gone on to the next life. Or maybe we'd use the phrase, the afterlife. And one day I will join him. But of course, he's very sorrowful. So he says, I will go down to Sheol mourning to my son. So very, very early on, because obviously this is Genesis. This is the time of the patriarchs. Very, very early on, God had revealed that human life did not end with physical death. Now, again, what we will see is that the much clearer concepts that we have now were not necessarily in place this early on. We've used the phrase before, but it's worth repeating. The concept of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. And all that means is that God does not reveal all truth all at once. So what he revealed to Adam was sufficient. But it was not as much as what he had revealed to Abraham. Not as much as what he had revealed to Moses, not as much as what he revealed to David. As we work our way through biblical history, we see that as time unfolds, as redemptive history moves forward, God reveals more truth to future generations. So this idea of progressive revelation. So what Jacob understood, I was not nearly as well-formed as what we understand happens to us after we die. But what is clear from Genesis 37-35 is that they understood that human life did not cease when physical death occurred. And again, we see here, there's no statement about good people going one place, wicked people going another. Joseph has died, at least that's what Jacob is convinced of. He has gone to Sheol, and when Jacob dies, he will join his son in Sheol. Okay? So who has number 1630 for us? Dan, would you read that for us? Yes. So this is in the middle of Korah's rebellion, and this is Moses speaking to Dathan and Abiram. Sorry, my eye. Okay, but if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them, 
with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Okay. So as Dan is saying, this is after Korah's rebellion and the NIV here is using that, that phrase that we talked about, the realm of the dead, but that's where you should plug in in your mind the word Sheol. So what is being said here is that, look, if the Lord does something totally new, if the Lord does something totally unexpected, and the earth itself opens up and swallows the rebellious individuals and their families, and they go down alive into Sheol. Well, what does it mean to go down alive into Sheol? Because again, obviously, the earth did open up. And Korah and the others who had rebelled against the Lord and all of their households were swallowed up in the earth, and they died physically. Obviously, they died physically when the earth swallowed them. So what is meant by the phrase going down alive into Sheol? Probably what it is meaning is that if you experience a sudden death or an unexpected death, so if you are full of years and have lived out your life and you're peacefully in your bed and your family is around you and you die, you would not use the phrase that he or she went down alive to Sheol. You would certainly say that they went to Sheol because they passed from this realm into the next. But the idea of, or the phrase that's being used here in Numbers, that they went down alive into Sheol, is probably indicating that they died suddenly, or they died unexpectedly, okay? But again, that idea that once you die, once you cease to exist in this life, you continue to exist in Sheol, okay? Uh First Kings chapter two, verses six and nine. I think Flora had those for us. Flora, can you read those for us? And again, just a little background. Thank you for the background, Ted and Dan, that you gave. Uh, the background on this is David giving some instructions to Solomon just before David dies. And it's to punish Joab and it's to punish Shimei. So this is what David had to say in first Kings chapter two, verses six and nine. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Um, they... Hello. Okay. Yeah, we're ready for you. Okay. So act according to your wisdom and do not let uh, his gray hair go down to shale in peace. That's six. And um, verse nine says, now therefore do not let him go unpunished for you are a wise man and you will know what you ought to do to him and you will bring his gray hair down to shale with blood okay so this is david's sort of godfather like instructions to solomon just before david dies again talking about joab talking about shimei he says you know you will take their gray head down to Sheol. Um, do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, and you will bring his gray head down to Sheol 
in blood. So basically, what is David saying? Execute them. So in this case, again, it's a phrase using Sheol, but basically what it means to not let someone go down to Sheol in peace. Again, that idea of just dying peacefully after living your fullness of years is to be executed. So not to go down to Sheol in peace is to be killed or murdered, or in this case, executed. And the second is specifically, you know, bring his gray head down to Sheol in blood execute him so again another uh, way of, of translating sort of the phrase going down to sheol you could simply say it means dying in the old testament oftentimes when that phrase going down to sheol is is used all it really means is that a person has died it's just a way of again emphasizing that physical death does not bring an end to the existence of an individual then let's look at Psalm 89, verse 48. Who had that for us? Did we have someone? Howard, 89, 48. What, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? So again, pretty straightforward point here, which is everyone dies. Everyone dies. And again, as is often the case in Hebrew poetry, there's sort of parallel statements that are relatively synonymous to each other, sort of a statement and then a restatement of it. So what man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of Sheol? So in other words, what man can escape death? What man can escape physical death? Well, of course, what we would say is only that generation that lives to see the return of Jesus Christ, but no one can. Okay, so again, what we see here is this is something that everyone faces. Everyone goes to Sheol. So what we have here is somewhat interesting to us as New Testament believers, because we don't have a strong and frequently emphasized distinction between the fate of the wicked dead and the fate of the righteous dead. A lot of times when Sheol is used in the Old Testament, it simply is our idea of dying. Everyone dies. The righteous die and the wicked die. We would continue to say that today, of course, because it's true. So what we see in the Old Testament is that oftentimes when the idea of Sheol is used, there's not a strong emphasis on a distinction between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. That's something that kind of started to develop as God continued to reveal himself to the Old Testament community of believers. So if we go now to the top of the second sheet, the great hope of the Old Testament believer was ultimately to be redeemed or rescued or saved from Sheol. So again, it's not a common teaching. It's not a well-formed teaching on the pages of the Old Testament, but it is that clear hope that simply dying and continuing to exist in Sheol after death is not the ultimate hope of the righteous, is not the ultimate hope of those who were putting their faith in God. And there's a couple places, particularly in the Psalms, where David and the sons of Korah give voice to this hope. 
Now, again, it's not a, a well-formed theology. It's not a, you know, theological treatise, but it's, it's a clear conviction that for the godly, for the righteous, for those who are putting their trust in the Lord, the final world, the final word is not going to be Sheol. So Psalm 16, verse 10, we read this actually just a couple weeks ago. Would someone be willing to read for us Psalm 16, verse 10? For you will not abandon my soul to jail, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So here is David, recognizing that he's going to die, recognizing that he's going to go to Sheol. But what the Lord has clearly showed him is that he will not be ultimately abandoned in Sheol. And again, he uses uh, the word here that's translated soul. Again, we talked about that a little last week about soul and spirit not having a strong distinction, the, the immaterial part of a person. So in Psalm 1610, David says, look, I know that the Lord, that you are not going to abandon me to Sheol, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. Well, of course, there he was speaking prophetically and we'll get to that in a second. But again, this idea that David knows he's going to die. David knows when he dies, he's going to go to Sheol. But he realizes that at some point in the future, God is going to rescue him. At some point in the future, God is going to rescue him. Not much more than that. Just, you won't abandon me to Sheol. But not really much more than that. Uh, the second passage that we're going to look at uh, Psalm 49, let's look at verses 14 and 15. I only have verse 15 on the sheet, but if you read together Psalm 49, 14 and 15, it begins to, to look at a distinction between the righteous dead and the wicked dead. So Psalm 49, verses 14 to 15. Would someone be willing to read those for us? But God will be redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Okay, so that's verse 15. Could you read the verse before that as well, Ephraim, in verse 14 also? Oh, 14. I know it wasn't on the sheet. Like sheep, that one? Yes, exactly. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and they will be feed of them. The upright will rule, rule over them in the morning. Their form will decay in the grave far from the princely mansions. So here he is talking about those who trust in themselves. If you look at verse for, look at verse 13, this is the fate of those who trust in themselves. So obviously these are folks who are not trusting in the Lord. They are trusting in themselves. They are unbelievers. Well, in verse 14, what happens to them? Well, Sheol is going to rule over them and death will feed on them. And the upright, here's now a distinction between those who trust in themselves and the upright. The upright will rule over them in the morning, 
So the idea of sometime in the future and their forms will decay in Sheol. But again, now that hope in verse 15, but God will redeem my life. This is a Psalm written by the sons of Korah. Obviously those who put their trust in the Lord, who had faith in the Lord, but God will redeem my life from Sheol. He will surely take me to himself. So here again is a little bit more sort of forming concept that ultimately there will be a distinction between the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous. Death is going to rule over the wicked. They will be consigned to Sheol. And at some point, the upright will rule over them in the morning. And ultimately, the righteous will be redeemed from Sheol. So these are a couple of examples of this future hope that the Old Testament saint had. The Old Testament saint knew that they would die. The Old Testament saint knew that they would go to the realm of Sheol along with the wicked dead who continued to exist as well. But they knew that that was not going to be the final word over them. That at some point in the future, they would be redeemed from Sheol. Although it was not clear what that redemption or that salvation from Sheol would look like. Okay? Any comments or questions about this before we press on into the new testament yes kieko can someone hand kieko the microphone so the folks on zoom can hear her question uh when i hear the word sheol he word then that instantly Reminds me of another word, not Hebrew, maybe Greek, uh, Hades. That's what we're about to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we're about to talk about. Um, any other questions or comments before we move on? Because what Kieko is, is, is bringing up is what we're going to talk about next, okay? So there you see in bold uh, on the second sheet, the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament, the word Hades. Okay, so I'm going to erase all this. Now, most of us are aware of the fact that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a few chapters written in Aramaic, a language very similar to Hebrew. And so, as we said, Sheol is a Hebrew word. But about three to 400 years, we'll say roughly 300 B.C., so about 300 years before Jesus Christ came, the Old Testament was translated into Greek because a lot of the Jews had been scattered throughout what was now a largely Greek-speaking world with the conquest of Alexander the Great in 333 to 323 BC. A lot of that part of the world became Greek-speaking. So there were more distant language and were having trouble approaching the Hebrew scriptures. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek about 300 BC. This translation is sometimes referred to as the Septuagint. And sometimes it is abbreviated LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70. So 
This is not the original language. Greek is not the original language of the Old Testament. Hebrew is and a little Aramaic. But the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. So when they were translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and whenever they came across the word Sheol, the Greek word that they used to translate it was the word Hades. So originally, from a biblical perspective, originally when the word Hades was used as the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, it was the equivalent of what we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about. What is Sheol? So when the word Hades was used as the word to translate into the world, is that the word Hades started to take on a more negative definition. And so by the time that Jesus comes into the world, at this point now, Hades is no longer sort of this neutral understanding that everyone goes to Sheol, that everyone continues to exist beyond the grave. Now Hades was a place of punishment that it is used, it is describing a place where the wicked dead are punished. So this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Because originally when the word Hades was used as a word in scripture, in the Old Testament as a translation of Sheol, it would not be appropriate to think of Hades as meaning the same as what it means when it's used in the New Testament. But this is where KJV got the idea of translating Sheol with the word hell. Remember, we said that's the way KJV, at least old KJV, the newer KJV maybe updated it. That's the way the old KJV translated Sheol, which is not an appropriate translation of it. Joseph did not go to hell. Jacob did not go to hell. David did not go to hell. So it's not an appropriate translation of Sheol. But we do start to have a change. So when Hades, the Greek word Hades, is used to translate the Old Testament, it's the concept of Sheol. But then when Christ comes, and then shortly after his return to the Father, the New Testament is written, then when Hades is used, in almost every case, it has a negative connotation. It is a place of punishment, okay? Now, the exception to that, well, actually, let's jump down and look first at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, this is a parable, okay? It's a very realistic parable, but it is a parable. And so we always want to be a little cautious about getting systematic theology from a parable, but because of the way Jesus describes reality in this parable, it certainly seems to be a good place for us to kind of understand New Testament concepts. 
So Luke chapter 16, um, let's just take it from the beginning. Looking at verse 19, this is Jesus telling a parable. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Or NIV has here Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone come across over from there to us okay so what is jesus doing here jesus is radically expanding the understanding of sheol because in this parable there is a rich man who was wicked and there was lazarus who was a poor man and was righteous and in this parable, they both die. They both physically die. But Jesus doesn't say, and Lazarus and the rich man went to Sheol. Now, again, from an Old Testament perspective, saying that would not be inaccurate. The Bible is not contradicting itself. The Bible is not undermining itself. Remember that idea of progressive revelation. Earlier saints did not understand as much as we understand. So Jesus is now expanding the concept of Sheol. Do both Lazarus and the rich man continue to exist after their physical death? Yes. Is that what the idea of Sheol was putting forward as truth? Yes. So Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He's simply adding to the Old Testament understanding of Sheol. And the two phrases or the two words that Jesus uses one is the bosom of Abraham. This is the only place in scripture that this phrase is used. So it's absolutely unique to this parable. But what we see is the bosom of Abraham is a place of comfort. So the poor man dies. He is taken to Abraham's bosom. And there he is comforted. Well, the rich man... The rich man goes to Hades. You see, this is where it gets a little complicated because in Hades, the rich man is in agony. This is different than the concept of Hades being used as the word to translate Sheol. Remember, 300 years between 
choosing the Greek word Hades to translate the Hebrew word Sheol to the word Hades being used in the New Testament. Okay? So this is where it gets a little bit complicated. But what we have here is now an expanded understanding of the concept of Sheol. What Jesus is saying is that upon physical death, there is an immediate distinction between the righteous dead and the wicked dead. The righteous dead go to a place of comfort that he calls the bosom of Abraham. The wicked dead go to a place of agony, a place that Jesus refers to as Hades. Okay? So again, not contradicting the Hebrew concept of Sheol, not contradicting the Old Testament understanding, expanding it. Expanding it. Now giving a much clearer focus to the distinction being made when a righteous person dies, they go to a place of comfort, and a wicked person dies. They go, excuse me, they go to Hades, a place of agony. Okay? Is this making sense? Yeah, please, a comment or a question, Alex? Um, the bosom of Abraham is that still shale again what we want to try to do is understand shale as an old testament concept and the old testament concept of shale basically is the dead continue to exist now the challenge to that is when we saw in the two Psalms, the hope of redemption from Sheol or being saved from Sheol. What was the understanding there? Well, in a second, we're going to get to Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes Psalm 16 to try to understand that a little bit more. But what I would say is it would not be appropriate to refer to the bosom of Abraham as Sheol because now we're being given a fuller understanding. Sheol is never used in the New Testament. It's a Hebrew word, and there's no effort to try to translate the concept of Sheol into the New Testament. So I would say when we're reading the Old Testament, this is an incredibly helpful and necessary concept to understand. But what it reminds us of is that the Old Testament saint only had a limited understanding of what happened when a person died. So no, I would not refer to the of Abraham as Sheol. But what I would say is that this is giving us a more detailed understanding of what happens when both the righteous dead and the wicked dead die. Sheol was just simply saying that everybody dies and everyone continues to exist after death. Okay? Is that helpful? Okay. So let's go take take sort of the challenging if you go back now, uh, the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament Hades under that heading, it says in the Greek Old Testament, Hades used to translate Sheol. The only time that happens is when Psalm 1610 is being quoted. The only time that Hades is used as a translation of Sheol is in Acts chapter 2. 
Because in Acts chapter 2, verses 27 and 31, the Apostle Peter is giving his Pentecost sermon. And basically what he is saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophetically predicted by David in Psalm 16. So that's like a whole new level to what David was saying. Because within the context of reading Psalm 16 in David's day, what David was saying is that he knew when he died, he would go to Sheol, but that one day God would rescue his soul from Sheol or rescue him from Sheol. But now with the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit was providing Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter is saying what David was actually speaking about in Psalm 1610 was a prophetic declaration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so jumping now to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has been given. The apostles and other disciples are praising God in tongues. The pilgrim audience accuses them of being drunk. Peter says, how could we be drunk? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. To me, one of the most hilarious responses in scripture. He doesn't say we're not drunk because drunkenness is a sin. He says, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Who gets drunk at nine o'clock in the morning? So in Acts chapter two, in two different places, Peter is now saying David spoke as a prophet when he talked about the Lord redeeming my soul from Sheol. So in Acts chapter 2, let's, let's again just get the context here. We're not going to talk in detail about all this, but verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miraculous wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, this is now Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to Hades. Remember, this is being written in Greek. But this is not Hades as Jesus was using Hades. This is Hades as a translation for Sheol. Because you will not abandon me to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. In your presence. Now listen to what Peter says here. He says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. So what Peter is doing here now is saying the rescue from Sheol that David was speaking of for David has not occurred yet. This makes things a little complicated. But he was a prophet 
and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to the grave, nor did the body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God. Okay? And I'm sorry, I read it without translating it. Grave there in 31 is again the word Hades. So what is Peter doing here? Well, Peter's putting a whole new wrinkle on this because Peter is saying, actually, when David spoke of his hope that God would not abandon him to Sheol, he was being used by the Spirit to speak prophetically of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he actually says is, look, David's body is still here. David's body is still with us. Because David died, he was buried, his tomb is still with us. But the ultimate hope that David spoke of was the resurrection of Jesus. And that has happened. So, this is a little challenging. Because what we have is before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus clearly saying that there is a place of comfort that the righteous dead go when they die. So what David understood when he penned the words of Psalm 1610 is probably only a fraction of what it really meant. Was David looking consciously to his own bodily resurrection probably not because bodily resurrection is not a concept that occurs in the old testament until daniel chapter 12 and daniel chapter 12 is the only place that bodily resurrection is referred to in the old testament so it's hard to know for sure what was in david's heart and i don't think it's a question that we can ultimately answer. But what he understood was that something better was coming. That's all I would say with confidence. David, in his mind, when he wrote Psalm 16, what he understood was that he was going to die. He was going to go to Sheol. He was going to continue to exist. But at some point in the future, something much, 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 much better was coming. That's what David understood. Then on the day of Pentecost, when the Lord sends the Holy Spirit, and Peter now is inspired by the Spirit to preach that Pentecost sermon, what the Spirit reveals to Peter is that David was speaking as a prophet. And in fact, when David was speaking of himself, he was prophetically speaking, uh, speaking of the descendant, Jesus Christ, who would be raised in bodily form. That was what was embedded in there probably not the conscious hope that david had in mind when he wrote psalm 16 but certainly a deeper fuller understanding that he was as a prophet speaking of the bodily resurrection of jesus christ that occurred three days after his body was placed in the tomb so 
I don't want to press it too much because I don't think we can know for sure what was in David's heart when he penned that. All I would say is that he knew there was a greater hope that was coming. He knew there was something much better that was coming. And by the infinite wisdom of the Spirit of God, when David penned those words some thousand years before Jesus came, the Spirit of God embedded in there an additional expanded understanding that David was actually speaking of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But again, for what we're talking about here, this is the only place that I would argue that the word Hades is used in the New Testament without the negative connotation that is given to it by Jesus in Luke 16. Because there's nothing negative in the connotation of Sheol in Psalm 16 beyond this is just the place where the dead go, okay? But let me pause here just to see if there's any comments or questions about this before we look at a few more uses of Hades in the New Testament. Yeah, I was thinking, um... You, you can hardly overemphasize the linkage between David and Jesus. Not only here we're talking about the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection being rescued, but um, you know Psalm 22 and also Psalm of David goes into great detail about feeling abandoned by God, about a lot of the details of crucifixion. And um, there are other places where David talks about the terrors of death encompassed me, you know, and I was dragged down to the depths of the earth. There are so many things, so many, so many linkages between David and Jesus, and and this is uh, one of the one of the final ones. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But another thing that I think this really helps us to be encouraged to do is to take the words of the Psalms and put them on Jesus's lips. You know, even the psalm that Ted preached on a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 24, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands. Well, who has clean hands? Jesus does. Those with pure heart. Who has a pure heart? Jesus does. Particularly when we see David proclaiming his righteousness. I forget which psalm it was. I think it was one we read about a week ago. You know, Lord, repay me for my righteousness. Well, again, who is ultimately the only one who was purely righteous and was completely rewarded for his righteousness was Jesus. So you see what Peter is doing here is Peter is actually giving us a reading strategy for the Psalms. As we should with all of the Old Testament, Peter is saying, when you're reading the Psalms, look for Jesus. And the example that, that Ted gave is an excellent one, Psalm 22. That's one of the ones that we very easily look for Jesus. But look for Jesus in all of the Psalms. Look for Jesus in all of the Psalms. When the first generation of the church was really becoming aware of the fullness of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, the book of Psalms was one of the most frequently quoted books of the Old Testament for proclaiming the Lordship and Messiahship of Jesus. The three most quoted books of the Old Testament in the New are the book of Psalms, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy. 
Those were the three that were most frequently quoted. Jesus himself actually quotes Deuteronomy frequently. But as the New Testament church was coming to understand the fullness of the Messiahship of Jesus, the book of Psalms was a place where they found ample examples of the Messiahship of Jesus being proclaimed. So this is Peter giving us a reading strategy for the Psalms. Look for Jesus. And actually, in many cases, place on the lips of Jesus the words of the Psalms. Now, of course, not when David is professing his sinfulness, but in so many other cases. Okay? So, is this making sense so far, or is this a little confusing? I realize it's a little tough to track with, but it's important for us to understand. Because, again, you know, when you're thinking, well, why did KJV translate Sheol as hell? you kind of now have an understanding why. Because of the earlier context of Hades, not necessarily being negative, but somewhat neutral like Sheol, but then eventually becoming very negative. So if you read the, the later understanding of Hades into it being used as a translation of Sheol, you could see why hell would be a reasonable English translation. But obviously it is not, okay? But yes, Karen. This is a little follow-up on what Alex, I think, was saying before. But it seems to me in the Old Testament that Sheol is a place. It's, it's you die, you go there, and um, you wait there until God takes you out. And um, But when you get to the New Testament... It seems that Sheol has been then divided into the good part of Sheol and the bad part of Sheol, because the good part, the bosom of Abraham, the bad part is the place of agony and fire. So, but it's still, I mean, it's still all of Sheol. I mean, it, to me, Haiti, I can understand the negative connotation of Hades, but uh, if people are still going somewhere, then there is still whatever you want to call it. If it's still a place after you die, you go to this place, which now happens to be divided into the Hades section and the, you know, the bosom of Abraham section. Right. And, and, to, to reinforce the first part of your comment, some of the passages of Sheol in the Old Testament talk about it being a place with gates or with bars, thus sort of lending to the point that you were making. The idea being that, you know, once you go to Sheol, you can't go back. You can't like freely move between Sheol and life on earth. The only thing I would say, and maybe I, I didn't say it clearly when I was trying to answer Alex's question, the word Sheol is never used in the New Testament, except when Psalm 16 is being quoted. And so it's kind of like once we have the fuller revelation, fuller revelation to describe what God has revealed to us about life after death. Because again, what we're going to see is that God gives us not a full picture, but a clearer picture. So you know, Jesus talked about paradise to the thief on the cross. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul talks about going to be with the Lord, being in the 
presence of the Lord. And so, you know, because this is simply a concept that's confined to the Old Testament, that's why I kind of want to leave it there, just because it's not on the lips of any of the authors of the New Testament, not even Jesus himself. Jesus talks about Hades, and then Jesus talks about Gehenna, which is often translated hell. So that's why I would just kind of want to leave it there, because to me, one of the questions that the New Testament does, excuse me, that the scriptures, I don't believe clearly answers, how long was this distinction actually present? I don't think the scriptures clearly tell us that this was something that developed over time. Our understanding of it developed. But I don't think the scriptures tell us, was there a time when all the dead really did just go to one place, and then at some point God said, okay, now I'm going to start dividing you. No way scripture gives us that level of understanding. So our understanding has increased, but my sense is Jesus, when he's telling this parable, has not died or risen yet. And we'll, if we have time, we're going to talk about this later tonight. This distinction has already been made before Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead. So how far back was this distinction present? Maybe not in the mind of the Old Testament saints, maybe not in their understanding of truth, but I don't think it's possible for us to scour the scriptures to know was just because the Old Testament way of presenting is that everyone goes to Sheol was, does that mean that for a while there was no distinction that, you know, Pharaoh was hanging out with Jacob and Joseph? Scripture just doesn't tell us. And, and again, it's that idea of progressive revelation. It's like asking the question, you know, did Solomon go to heaven? I remember when I was in college, that was one of these theological questions. Well, asking about someone going to heaven in the Old Testament, it's just not an Old Testament question because it's just not a concept the Old Testament deals with. So we're, we're, we're struggling here, I think, to try to use the language of Scripture as Scripture uses it. But what I, I believe is that did this distinction always exist? Did this distinction become established by God at some point in time scripture doesn't tell us but I think a key concept is this distinction is clearly in place before Jesus dies and rises again because some people say that when Jesus died and rose again he took with him all the righteous dead who were waiting in Hades or waiting in Sheol now, later, if we get a chance, we'll look at Ephesians 4.8, and I think that's wrong, because Jesus is already making the distinction before he died and rose again. And I think it's misunderstanding Psalm 68 and, and Ephesians, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. So I think what we've got to say is we're looking at, we're looking at a concept that we're very comfortable with because we live in the New Testament age, what happens to you when you die. And we've just got to say that that level of understanding that God has blessed us with, that God has given us, the Old Testament saints just didn't have that. They just didn't have that. They didn't have that clarity, that, that level of understanding of truth that we have. And so to try to take that, that level of truth and then apply it back to Jacob or Joseph or whoever else, it just is not going to work. 
because you're trying to do something. I think the scriptures are just saying, no, don't do that. Okay. We have a question or comment on Zoom. Yeah, please. So, Dave, um, I raised my hand about three minutes ago. Uh, and so I was listening to obviously what you said. So my question, you talk about progressive revelation of what's occurred in the past, especially prior to Jesus's time on earth. And um, so, and you, but I wonder if, and it's somewhat, you started to allude to discuss this by referring to Ephesians 4. I'm wondering if something actually changed when he spent time in Sheol, in Sheol or whether it happens at that specific time, so that this would, in other words, it's not just about a progressive revelation, but that he actually changes the situation. I'm not implying that it's an Ephesians 4, that you know, he takes everybody into, uh, out of Sheol or, or, or from the Old Testament, but it seems that something's changed. You've got the promise of, to the thief about today you will be with me in paradise. Is that the bosom of Abraham or is that something different? Um, you've got <laughs> people coming out of the grave uh, uh, during or very shortly after Jesus's death. Is that a token of something that he did during that time? In wow. other words, it, there's, seems to me that there's a discussion about a progressive revelation and understanding of what happens until Jesus lives, and then possibly a change that he himself affects uh, as a result of his work on the cross, or as a result of the resurrection, or as a result of the ascension. I wouldn't presume to, to sort of know when this might happen, but it just seems that something's changed rather than an actual change in a revelation of uh, or an understanding of a, a situation that continues from Old Testament to New Testament. Yeah, I know, obviously, Richard, really excellent, excellent points that you're bringing up here. So, you know, the first thing that, that, that Richard is saying is, is that the truth does not change. You know, what, what is true has always been true. So when you talk about the idea of progressive revelation, that doesn't mean that, that God is adding to truth. What he is doing is he is revealing more of the same truth to his people as we work our way through redemptive history. So absolutely, what is true has always been true because Jesus himself is truth. So as God reveals more truth to his people, truth itself does not change. Second thing that Richard is saying is, doesn't obviously the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ change everything? Yes, absolutely. So in other words, when I was talking about the concept of progressive revelation, that wasn't so much that truth was changing as a better understanding of truth was being revealed. It was just people understood more because God was revealing more. But absolutely, when Jesus Christ dies and rises again, you know, from one perspective of the New Testament, everything has changed. I mean, how could the universe not change when the eternal son of God is nailed to a cross, dies, his body placed in a tomb, and on the third day he rises? The entire, the entire cosmos has changed 
as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So then the, the, the more specific nature of Richard's question is, well, in light of what we're talking about, does the New Testament make clear to us what actually changed? And I would say to a certain extent, the New Testament is relatively silent. I don't believe the New Testament clearly teaches where Jesus went when his body was in the grave. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus descended into hell. So that certainly was the conviction of part of, if not the majority of the early church. I don't think the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus descended into hell when he, his body was in the grave. So based on the, the categories that Jesus himself uses in Luke 16, did he go to Hades? Did he suffer in Hades? Hades is a place of agony. Did the suffering of Christ go beyond his death on the cross? Was he three days in agony in Hades? I don't see anything in the New Testament that indicates that's what took place. Was he in the bosom of Abraham in a place of comfort? Ah, I mean, all I can say is, as I have read the New Testament, I don't see anything that definitively tells us where Jesus went when his body was in the grave. I think the scriptures are fine just saying, you don't need to know. What you need to know is he died on a cross, his body was placed in a tomb, and on the third day he rose. So even when Peter is quoting Psalm 16, and again, using the word Hades as the Greek translation of the concept of Sheol, I would argue that all Peter is really saying is that Jesus died. That Jesus died. Remember, because oftentimes when Sheol is used in a phrase in the Old Testament, all it's really referring to is physical death. David telling Solomon, don't let his gray head go down in peace to Sheol. Don't let him die in peace. Execute him. Or bring his gray head down to Sheol in blood. Execute him. So I would argue, and again, I, I'm very much on the cautious side here. I would argue we really don't know where Jesus' spirit was when his body was in the tomb. So on the one hand, what Richard is saying, absolutely 100% agree with. Of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ radically changed everything. But in terms of where the dead were hanging out before he died and rose, and where they were hanging out after he died and rose, I don't think the scriptures clearly indicate that to us. Because again, what I have heard in the past is that everyone was in the same place before Christ died and rose, and then he rescued the righteous dead from that same faint when he rose from the dead. The only problem is Jesus is saying before he dies and rises, that distinction has already been made. That distinction has already been made. So I would say ultimately, Richard, unfortunately, I don't think the New Testament answers your question. I do absolutely believe that the entire cosmos changed completely when D Jesus died and rose again. But in terms of 
where the dead were in relation to New Testament terms like a place of comfort, a place of agony before Christ, after Christ, I don't think that is made clear to us. One last comment because you threw in <laughs> you threw in that, that reference in Matthew where the tombs are open and the dead start walking around the holy city. That's only in the gospel of Matthew. Because they were people that were recognized and because they were coming out of the tombs, it was what we would refer to as a resuscitation. Now, again, let me make that clear. When, when um, the widow of Nain, when her son died, he was really dead, but Jesus resuscitated him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that he wasn't really dead. What that means is that he eventually died again. The widow of Nain's son is not living today. So he really died, and Jesus really brought him back to life, but only one has been resurrected. The only one who has been resurrected is Jesus. He is the only one who has died physically, been raised to a new physical body, never to die again. So when we're splitting these sort of theological issues, when we're looking at those that Jesus brought back to life, Lazarus, different Lazarus, not the Lazarus in the parable. Lazarus really died. He was really in the tomb for four days. Jesus really brought him back to life. But technically, that's not a resurrection because Lazarus died again. Lazarus is not with us. So that's why when we're using sort of these theological concepts, we use the word resuscitation. That doesn't mean they weren't really dead. All it means is that they died again. Elijah resuscitated a person. Elisha resuscitated a person. Elisha's bones resuscitated a person. Paul resuscitated people. Peter resuscitated people. All that means is, yes, these people actually really were dead. And they were really brought back to life, but they died again. They were resuscitated. Now, it's, it's fine to use the word resurrection as long as we're not making this technical distinction. The only one who has died in bodily form and been raised in bodily form, never to die again, is Jesus. Remember, what is the intermediate state? The time between death and the resurrection. Nobody has been resurrected yet except Jesus. He is the only one who has been resurrected. We are awaiting the resurrection. The dead in Christ are awaiting the resurrection. The wicked dead are awaiting the resurrection because it hasn't happened yet. It's only happened for one, for Jesus. So that verse that, that um, Richard was making reference to is Matthew, I think it's Matthew 27, where the tombs open and many dead people, dead saints, I think is the word that Matthew uses, start roaming around the holy city. I, I believe those have to be resuscitations because I think it's the same sort of thing that happened when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, raised him to life. I think, so I don't think it was, in other words, changing what had happened previously in terms of where the dead were going. So, but anyways, Richard, you, you brought up a lot of excellent points, but I think at the end, what I'm gonna say is 
Scripture doesn't tell us enough to speak with authority on these things. Because to me, that, 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 that clarity is just not there. But there are things that are clear. Oh, man, we're, we're running out of time here. Um, so let's, let's, look, let's look at a couple things that really are clear. Um, so what we have here now in the middle, is, but Richard, thank you so much for the, those excellent points. So what you have in the middle of the sheet are New Testament usages of the word Hades. So Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, would someone read that for us quickly? Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, this is Jesus himself speaking about the city of Capernaum. Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, does someone have 11? Thank you, Elliot. And you, Capernaum, are you to be exalted to heaven for your apathy and unresponsiveness? You will descend to Hades, the realm of the dead. For if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Okay. So, again, your translation is providing the interpretation of Hades here, realm of the dead, which in this case, I think, actually is not that helpful. Because Jesus is speaking of a city that is under judgment, a city that is judged for their unbelief. So are they going to that Old Testament concept of Sheol, that, that place where everyone goes? No, they are going to a place of judgment. Remember, between the translation of the Hebrew into the Greek and the New Testament, the concept of Hades had changed. Hades was not just a neutral understanding of the dead continuing to exist. Hades was now a place of punishment. So here is an example of Jesus saying, look, Capernaum, because of your unbelief, you are going to go down to Hades. You are going to go to a place of punishment. Yeah. Hades. In, in Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Hades. Yeah. All, no, we're, we're not going to get into Gehenna tonight. So there is another Greek word that's used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word Gehenna. We'll get into that maybe next week, maybe a little further. That is what we would translate hell. But no, these passages that we're looking at tonight, Dan, they are all Hades. They are all Hades. And I believe there absolutely is a distinction between Gehenna and Hades. What I would say is Hades is the temporary place where the wicked dead are punished. Hell is the eternal place where the wicked dead are punished. Because if you go to Revelation chapter 20, it says Hades gives up its dead but then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades itself ceases to exist at the final judgment of Revelation 20. So we're, we're getting a little bit ahead in terms of passages that we've looked at, but since Dan is bringing it up, it's helpful to put that in front of you. Gehenna is a different Greek word, usually translated hell in our English Bibles, and I believe Gehenna 
is the place of eternal punishment of the wicked dead. Hades, I believe, is the designation for the temporary place of punishment for the wicked dead. Again, this is Hades as it's used in the New Testament, not Hades as it's used to translate Sheol in the Old. I realize this is hard to keep track of, but it's important that we do the best we can with this. Yes, Elliot. So here's where I'll ask, uh, where does purgatory come in? Let's actually go 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Now, this verse does not actually use the word Hades, but Peter gives us a, an incredibly clear understanding of the concept of Hades. So even though he doesn't use the word Hades, he gives us a concept of Hades. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me just read it for the sake of time. Peter says, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of punishment while continuing, excuse me, for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Second half of what Peter writes here. God knows, the Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So what he is saying is when the unrighteous die before the day of judgment, their punishment begins. It's not the punishment that will follow final judgment because final judgment hasn't come yet. But when the, the unrighteous unbeliever dies, they go to a place where they are kept for final judgment. But in that place where they are kept for final judgment, they are already being punished. This reinforces that idea. That the rich man, he had not experienced final judgment yet. Nobody has because it hasn't happened yet. But he was in a place of agony awaiting final judgment. Lazarus was in a place of comfort awaiting final judgment. So even though Peter doesn't use the word Hades, he gives us an incredibly clear understanding of the concept of Hades as it is used in the New Testament, except when quoting Psalm 16. Hades is that place of temporary punishment where the unrighteous dead go awaiting final judgment. That's what Hades is. Hell, I believe, is the same as the lake of fire. The lake of fire or hell is the place of eternal punishment that the unrighteous dead go to after final judgment. That's why Revelation says death and Hades, they give up their dead, but then they themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. So Elliot, the concept of purgatory actually just developed in the idea that there is a place of purging for 
folks who have died. But it is not a biblical concept. It actually comes from Maccabees. Maccabees was a book that was written in this time between the close of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ into the world. This is sometimes referred to as the intertestamental period. There's a group of books that were written in this time that Catholics have added to their Bibles. The book of Maccabees is one of them. The book of Maccabees actually is an incredibly helpful historical document because it tells us actually about the, the Hanukkah and, and things that happened in Jerusalem in the second century BC. But in terms of doctrine, it's not the word of God. So there is a reference to the idea of purgatory in Maccabees. But the idea of purgatory just is that some people, when they die, they're not good enough to go to heaven, but they're not bad enough to go to hell. So in the next life, they are purged in purgatory. And that purging obviously is painful. It's suffering. But then eventually, when all of their sins are purged, they make it to heaven. That's the idea of purgatory. You can see how, because of the concepts we're talking about, you could see how that idea might develop. But it's not a biblical concept at all. I mean, now, if you talk to a Catholic, they would say that it is. But the only clear reference to purgatory is found in Maccabees. I can't remember if it's first or second Maccabees. Nowhere in scripture. But if you kind of start to take this stuff and say, well, you know, what about those sort of in-between people? They're not really evil, but they're not really good. Well, they go to purgatory. And that's why Catholics actually believe if you pray for people who have died, you can shorten their time in purgatory. But a lot of Catholics are petrified of purgatory. You know, I was ministering to a woman not long ago who was born and raised a Catholic. She's older. She's, she's close to death. She was asking about purgatory. And clearly, it, it inspired great fear in her. And I had the opportunity to assure her that purgatory is not a biblical truth. That if you put your trust in Jesus, you don't go to a place of purging if you are not good enough. Because even that concept completely undermines the grace of Christ. It's that whole concept that, you know, you weren't good enough in this life, so you have a little bit more purging to be done. But that's where the idea of purgatory came from, okay? So, yeah, I'm sorry, we're over time here. But just quickly, we've looked at then the understanding of Hades in the New Testament. If you go to the bottom of this sheet now, the hope of the New Testament believer, Luke 16, 22, we've already mentioned it. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. It's a place of comfort. Luke 23, 43, Jesus to the thief on the cross. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Someone asked it earlier. I believe paradise and the bosom of Abraham are a different designation for the same place, a place of comfort. Philippians chapter 1, 21 to 23, Paul is in Roman prison. He's very much facing the possibility he's going to be executed. He's torn. You know, he says, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. Which will I choose? He says, I desire to do, depart, which is better by far. Why? 
because if he departs, he says, I will be with Christ. So Paul knew that if he was to be executed in a Roman prison, the moment that he died physically, he would depart. He would depart this world. He would depart this life. His spirit would depart his body. But what would happen to him? He would go and be with Christ, which he knows was better by far. The second Corinthians passage, Paul says, right now, we are at home in our body, but we are away from home with the Lord. As long as we are at home in our body, we are away from home in terms of the Lord. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. What would we desire? What do we long for? Well, we long to be away from the home of our body and to be at home with the Lord. So the moment that you leave the home of your body, you go home to be with the Lord. That's why sometimes funerals or memorial services are called homegoing because of the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, he uses two very interesting Greek words, which literally mean to be at home or to not be at home, to be at home or to be away from home. And he uses them in verse 6 and verse 8. So if you're at home with your body, you're not at home with the Lord. But if you're not at home with your body, that means you're at home with the Lord. So this is the language that the New Testament uses. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when you die physically, what happens? You go to be with the Lord. You go to be at home with the Lord. You go to a place of comfort. And what we see in the last passage, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, this is when the fifth seal of the scroll is broken. It says, John was given a vision of the souls under the, mar uh, the, the, the souls of the martyrs under the altar of God. And there they were in the presence of the Lord. They were in the presence of the Lord. But it's interesting, what were they saying? Everything's fine. I don't have a care in the world. No, they were crying out, Lord, how long? How long? How long? Because remember, the intermediate state is a temporary, provisional reality. It is not the final judgment of the wicked. It is not the ultimate blessing of the righteous. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, they are saying, Lord, how long? How long? How long? The intermediate state is a temporary, provisional condition. What the entire universe is longing for and waiting for is the return of Jesus Christ. Whether you are at home in the body or whether you are at home with the Lord, you are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. That's what we are waiting for. And that's what we will start to talk about next. I realize we went through this last part really, really quickly, but I wanted to make sure we got to that because I don't want us just to be thinking about Hades and the plight of the unrighteous dead. The great, great assurance that we have is that if we are in Christ, when we die physically, if we do not live to see the return of Jesus Christ, 
we will immediately be taken into the presence of the Lord. You know, years ago, it was a common teaching in the church to talk about soul sleep, that when you died, you just simply entered sort of this limbo where you were completely unconscious until the return of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, completely unbiblical. No, when you die, the moment that you die, you go to be with the presence of the Lord, which is better by far. But in the presence of the Lord, you are eagerly, excitedly, anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, whether we're living here or whether we're in the presence of the Lord, that's what we should be longing for more than anything else. Because that is the great culmination of our salvation. Okay? Well, I realize we really raced through the end here and, and we're a little over time. Our next scheduled meeting is November 2nd. And what we will do is we will open with an opportunity for any comments or questions. Maybe we'll actually read a couple of these passages as well, since we didn't have time to do that. But November 2nd will be our next time. And also, if it is okay with all of you, we are not even going to be close to finishing all this material by Thanksgiving. Originally, when we had, as elders had decided to do this, we were going to do it for three months. But that means we have two more times together, November 2nd, November 16th. We're not even going to be close to finishing. So as long as you guys are okay with it, we're going to push this beyond Thanksgiving. I mean, we will continue to meet in this format. We will continue to meet every other Wednesday instead of every Wednesday. We will continue to encourage as many folks as possible to be here in person. But as long as you don't make Carl mad, he will continue to offer Zoom. So, but yeah, unless anyone has a strong objection, we will not try to finish up eschatology in two more sessions because obviously there's a lot more stuff that we can talk about. And the comments and the questions are excellent. You know, Ted was saying it last night at the elders meeting, we don't want to race through these things. We want to give you guys an opportunity to respond, to interact. So again, if you have a strong objection to that, just see me afterwards. But at this point, we will go well beyond Thanksgiving to try to cover, you know, some of the things that we will want to do in this class. But let me close this out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And Lord, we do realize that, that, that tonight we were dealing with some things that are, are probably hard for most of us, trying to understand the concept of Sheol, trying to to have clarity on things that really you only give us glimpses and snapshots of. But Father, we do want to thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to study the scriptures in greater detail. You know, what a blessing to really be able to dive into your word and, and try to understand as much as we possibly can, even if at the end we're left with some uncertainty. Because God, what is necessary has been made absolutely clear. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to you, Lord God, but the things that have been made clear are for us and for our descendants. And so God, help us to be okay with, with saying some things are, are hidden to us, are clear to you, and that's okay. But the things that you have made clear to us, help us to do everything we can to rightly understand. And Father, we do thank you so much that 
the great hope that we have right now is that if we do not live to see your return, we will depart and go to be with you. We thank you for the incredible comfort that that brings us. But of course, Lord, we look even more eagerly to that moment when Jesus Christ will return. And may we continue to long for and pray for with expectancy your return, Lord Jesus. So again, thank you so much, Lord, for giving us this time together tonight. Pray for all of us who have to travel that you'd see us home safely. And Jesus, we lift up all of these things to you because you alone are worthy. Amen. Amen.